Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. I want to introduce Pastor Mark Rowe. He happens to be one of my favorite younger pastors. I really mean that. I, I actually met his wife before I met him. I met him briefly at a retreat I was speaking at, but he was totally forgettable. Um, but I met Holly, his wife, and she just came right up to me and was like, so glad you're here. She was welcoming me. I'm like, wow, if every church had someone on their welcoming team like her. And I asked her, she's like, I'm, I don't even go to this church. I'm just visiting from Australia. But she was just so welcoming, and she left kind of an impression on me. And later I found out that these two found each other, fell in love, got married. And um, they came and lived among us for a while. Um, they were at our church. They had their babies here. And um, he interned with us for a while. And Pastor Mark, I, it was my hope he would stay and grow old with this church and be one of our pastors. But um, the Lord took him to New York City. He really felt a call there. And he did an internship with Redeemer under Tim Keller. And now he's the lead pastor at Joy Manhattan. And I had the privilege of preaching at their retreat not too long ago. And it's a beautiful congregation in one of the most strategic places in the United States. And they are preaching the gospel and representing Christ in that very big city. So I want to ask if you would just join me in a word of prayer for Pastor Mark before we invite him. He assured me that he could negotiate this two-foot ledge. I didn't want to risk it, so... uh, but. Join me in praying as we start here. God, thank you for Pastor Mark and his answering your call to ministry, for the clarity with which you called him and Holly and their kids to New York City, and for setting him over a congregation that really is preaching the gospel and living the gospel in a city where that matters so much right now. We pray, God, that you would give favor to their ministry And that they would be a light for Christ and a force for real good and for the real power and presence of God in New York. As he now begins to bring your word to our church, we pray that through those words we would hear your voice. And we would hear them with the force and the love, the authority and the conviction that comes with you speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. It's so great to be here. You know, in many ways, it feels like uh, it's coming home. And I I feel so indebted to the ministry here, uh, starting off as a ministry intern. I really cut my teeth in ministry here. Uh, So much of my ministry philosophy is based on uh, the philosophy here at Harvest. And I remember back when I first started at Harvest, I think we were two years into marriage at that point. We were pregnant with our first child. And So much of what I've learned as a husband, as a father, I've learned from Pastor Dave and from Jeannie as well. So Holly and I feel so indebted to them, their whole family too, and to this community too. Such a special place in our hearts. And to come back to be able to share God's word with you is such a humbling uh, privilege. And Pastor Dave came to preach at our church in fall, kind of an upgrade for us. But for me coming here to preach, kind of a downgrade for all of you. So, uh, But it's such a privilege to be here uh, to preach to you all. Uh, you know, we raise our three boys who are nine, seven, and four uh, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, someone once asked the comedian Jim Gaffigan, who also raises his kids in Manhattan, what's it like raising 
all these kids in the Big Apple, and he said, imagine you're, you're drowning, and somebody hands you a baby, right? <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what it's like raising uh, young kids uh, in the city. Uh, but we love it there. We feel called to be there. Uh, it's challenging in a lot of ways, but we love doing ministry uh, in New York. But I wanted to jump into the theme of the retreat. I love the theme of this retreat, oneness. Uh, community is something that I uh, value dearly. It's a value of our community in New York, too. And the thick community is something that we're always trying to drive towards as well at, at Joy. And I wanted to talk tonight about, I think, one of the greatest barriers to oneness, one of the greatest barriers to unity, and that is uh, unforgiveness, unforgiveness. And I think all of us have experienced on some level, whether in our own relationships and friendships, uh, when we see communities, churches all around the country, unforgiveness is something that plagues uh, every context and has the potential to break down uh, the fabric of those communities. And, you know, everyone always says forgiveness is a great idea until you have something to forgive someone. It's always a great idea. We all espouse forgiveness until we're the ones who have to forgive uh, someone else. One of the hardest things that we have to do in life, but one of the most important evidences of God's grace in our lives, too. And unforgiveness, one of the easiest feelings to harbor in our hearts, but it can have lethal consequences. So I wanted to talk about the what of forgiveness, the why, and then the how of forgiveness. So I'm going to start off by talking about the what of forgiveness. Uh, I'm going to draw on the work of Vanitha Risner, who uh, tells a bit of her own story in articulating uh, her own journey through unforgiveness, too. And she went through massive hurt and betrayal and mistreatment. She was cheated on twice uh, in her marriage. She lost a loved one. Uh, due to a doctor's negligence. And I'm going to lean on some of her ideas and definitions about forgiveness uh, tonight. But she describes forgiveness as choosing not to hurt someone for the hurt that they caused you. Uh, Choosing not to retaliate, whether that's externally in the words that you say, uh, the words that you don't say. It might be internal in the resentment, bitterness that you might harbor in your own hearts toward that other person, uh, the lack of empathy, the desire for revenge. Uh, In whatever form it takes, forgiveness is choosing not to get back at someone else for the pain that they've inflicted on us. And to be clear, forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences. It doesn't mean that justice and disciplinary, sometimes legal action shouldn't be pursued Uh, People need to be held accountable for the evil that they inflict, lest they inflict further harm on other people. Uh, Forgiveness doesn't mean minimizing the pain or rationalizing or enabling people's behaviors. It doesn't mean enduring abuse. Often the most loving thing that we can do is to confront someone when they're living in sin for the sake of their own growth and rehabilitation as well. And Risner talks about two other misconceptions of forgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness doesn't always mean uh, reconciliation, where uh, you return to speaking terms, the the friendship is reestablished, you're conversant with that person again. Uh, Forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration, where the initial dynamic of that relationship is completely restored back to what it used to be. Forgiveness doesn't always mean either of those two things. Uh, Risner gives examples from her own marriage. Uh, When her husband was initially unfaithful to her, uh, completely devastating to her, 
incredibly painful, but eventually they reconciled. You know, God did something miraculous in her own heart where she was able to be reconciled to him, and eventually their own marriage was restored. Uh, they got back together again, and they enjoyed 15 more blissful years of marriage together. But unthinkably, uh, her husband was unfaithful again, and her heart shattered into a thousand pieces. And she would stay up late at night, just seething with anger and resentment, even hatred towards uh, her ex-husband and the woman that he was with as well. And in the morning, she would wake up with bitterness just pouring out of her. And for a long, long season, she never thought that she'd be able to forgive her husband again. But by a miracle of God, she was able to come to terms with what God was calling her to do, which was to forgive. And over time, uh, she was able to be reconciled uh, to her husband. Uh, the marriage, of course, was unfortunately not restored. Her husband did not repent, was not committed to change. He ended up staying with that woman. But by a miracle of God, they were reconciled, and she was able to grant him forgiveness. You see, somehow God gave her the power to forgive her husband and the other woman. It's just an incredible story. But her forgiveness was never conditioned upon the repentance of her husband. It was never conditioned upon his ability to change. I remember uh, giving this, uh, explaining this idea of forgiveness to our own church too, and someone objected and said, well, how can we be expected to forgive someone if they don't change and repent? Because isn't that what God expects of us? That we have to first repent in order for God to forgive us. But there's a very important difference between God's forgiveness and our forgiveness. God's con forgiveness confers salvation. Right? It confers salvation. The moment we repent of our sins, we receive Jesus into our lives, God's forgiveness is a salvific forgiveness. It brings us into the people of God. He confers salvation. But the forgiveness that we're called to, it doesn't confer sal salvation. It's a posture of releasing ourselves from resentment, hatred, anger, and bitterness. In all of God's commands to us to forgive, he doesn't provide qualifiers. He simply calls us to forgive. We're not responsible for the other person's salvation, nor are we responsible for their growth. But what God wants us to do is confront our own emotions that we're harboring inside. Dan Hamilton says that forgiveness is to deal with our emotions by sending them away, by denying ourselves the dark pleasures of venting them or fondling them in our minds. Forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. So those are some of the contours of what forgiveness is, uh, what forgiveness is, and it's a hard call. Sometimes it feels like an impossible call, but I wanted to talk about why we should forgive, why we should forgive. And of course, the main reason why we should forgive is because God calls us to in his word. And in Matthew chapter 6, it says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you, if you do not forgive, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You know, this is not a works-based salvation. What it shows is that when a person has truly understood and received God's forgiveness in their lives, they're able to then extend that same forgiveness to other people. It's reflecting a changed heart. And a heart that isn't changed, a heart that's reticent to offer forgiveness, means that perhaps that heart has not been softened by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of forgiveness. If you have an inability to forgive others, it may be evidence that you haven't fully received and processed the forgiveness of Christ in your own life. It's not an easy call to forgiveness. Oh, just a simple forgive and forget. It's not a call to instant forgiveness. Forgiveness is often a painful, long, arduous, excruciating journey, sometimes taking a lifetime to reach that point. But nevertheless, it is something that God still calls us to. It's also important to note that forgiveness can often be offered and granted to other people before we even feel it in our own hearts. When God calls us to forgive, he doesn't say you have to first feel the emotion in your heart before you can then get yourself to forgive. He simply calls us to forgive. And we trust that in the spirit of God, his power at work inside of us, that eventually our emotions will catch up. But the call is to simply grant the forgiveness. And sometimes all that we can muster up is a simple, God, help me to forgive this person in my life. I resent this person so much. I have, there's nothing inside of me that wants to forgive this person. Give me the resources to do it. Help me to forgive. Sometimes that's, that's all that we have to offer up to God. And often that's evidence that God's grace is actually at work in our lives. Even the ability to say that is evidence of God's mercy at work in our lives, simply expressing the desire to forgive. God is at work in our hearts. And God, of course, is faithful to empower us when he calls us to do something. I mean, this is the testimony of the entire New Testament. When God calls people, when Jesus calls the lame to walk, he gives them the power to do so. When he calls the blind to see, he gives them the power to see. He takes the scales off of their eyes. He allows them to see with clarity. When God tells the dead to rise from the dead, God, of course, is the one who supplies the power. And so it is with forgiveness. When he calls us to forgive, he is the one who will give us the power to grant that forgiveness to those who have hurt us so deeply. He will give us the strength to do that. So we forgive because God calls us to do it. He'll give us the power to do it. But another reason why we forgive is because it's how we can find true healing. It's how we can find true healing. When you've been wounded by someone else, the scars will always remain. Healing can take an incredibly long time, sometimes the rest of our lives. But to harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, it's, it's like having a wound that's covered in mud. And it's not until we clear that wound out that we wash it that the wound is able to fully heal. And we won't be able to find healing until we're able to clean out the wounds in our own hearts as well. I remember some years ago when uh, Holly and I and our boys 
Uh, we were on a road trip down the East Coast, and we stopped by Charleston, South Carolina, a beautiful, quaint southern city. And uh, the worst idea about that trip was doing a road trip with our three boys uh, in that car for uh, 12 hours. And on that trip, we were downtown Charleston. We stopped by uh, Mother Emanuel Church. And this church was in the news a number of years ago because of uh, this mass shooting where nine people in that church were killed by this teenager named uh, Dylan Roof. And uh, just a tragic story of uh, racial hatred and the ideology that Dylan Roof was brainwashed with. And he was trying to incite some kind of racial war uh, by shooting members of his church. And... It was deemed a hate crime, and it was all over the news. And what happened later on in that story was, if you've read about this, is one of the most astonishing examples of love and forgiveness that I have ever read about. And in the courtroom, when Dylan Roof was standing trial, a few members of the families who had lost a loved one had unthinkably offered forgiveness in that moment to Dylan Roof. And there was one person in particular who stood out. Uh, Chris Singleton was, was a member of Mother Emanuel and was 18 years old when his mother was killed. And he was left to care for his younger siblings on his own. And he was one of the family members who eventually came around to forgive Ruth. And here's a picture of uh, Singleton as well. And when he was asked about it, how did, how did you find the power to forgive where did you come up with the resources to forgive the people who killed your own mother? And he recalled this quote, and he said that it gave him strength. And it said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was, in fact, you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. And he goes on to say, I believe so many people view forgiveness as letting the other person off the hook. We think that we're letting the other person off the hook by forgiving when in actuality we're just freeing ourselves from that constant feeling of revenge. When you hold on to bitterness and resentment, the person who's in the deepest bondage is actually yourself. That the one who is constantly being wounded over and over again with that bitterness that you're harboring is actually yourself. While the person who has offended you is moving on with their lives, they are still wounding you with the bitterness that you're harboring inside. You see, to forgive is to allow yourself to heal, to let go. Of course, you will never forget the pain that they've inflicted upon you. But the wounds can no longer hold you anymore. They are not mastering you anymore. They don't control your life. They don't dominate your thinking. They don't keep you up at night. It's not the first thing that you think about in the morning. It doesn't dominate your life anymore. When we forgive, we are the ones, in fact, who receive the healing power of Christ in our lives. So that's why, why we forgive. We forgive because the Bible calls us to do it. We forgive because that's where our own healing can be found. And lastly, how do we, how do we forgive like this? How do we forgive? And there's a passage in Luke 
23, one of the final words of Christ on the cross, and it says this, when they came to the place called the skull, they, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said these famous words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus, of course, gives us the power. He gives us the model that we follow to somehow find the resources to forgive other people. And the first thing that he does here is he prays for his enemies. He prays for those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. And what he's doing here is he's, he's walking the walk. Everything that he's taught up to this point about loving your enemies, what he's doing is he's living it out in this moment. He is loving the very people who have crucified him on the cross. And we will rarely feel like forgiving someone. We will rarely feel like it in the initial moments when someone else harms us. But when we pray for someone, it doesn't always require us to fully feel the emotion as we're praying for him. The, the prayer, in the prayer, all that it requires is an openness, a willingness to want to grant that forgiveness. And praying, irrespective of how we're feeling inside, praying is simply putting ourselves in the position to forgive, whether we feel like it or not. And when we pray, God will break in and begin to change us. And it's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that he wants us to pray weekly, sometimes daily, every time we pray that prayer, we're asking God to help us. God, in the same way that you have forgiven me, help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. In the same way that you've released me from my debt, help me to forgive those who have debts against me. Asking God to help us to forgive others as we receive his forgiveness. That's the first thing that Jesus does here. And the second thing in this passage is Jesus' ability to have compassion on his enemies is a model that we also should follow when we look to those who have harmed us as well. What Jesus is doing, it's not just about not hating someone else when they've harmed us, but actually having compassion on them. Jesus is able to separate sin from the sinner. He's still able to have compassion on those who have killed him, who are killing him. He's able to see the humanity in them. He's able to, still able to show them grace even in this dire moment on the cross too. And there's a quote that I really appreciate from, from the author C.S. Lewis. And he says, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions but not hate the bad man. Or, as they would say, hate the sin but not the sinner. I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. It's our natural instinct to show grace to ourselves. And the first person that we think about the moment we wake up is ourselves. We have to tend to our needs. When we're hungry, we have to feed ourselves. We cleanse ourselves. We get ready for work. Uh, in our day-to-day -day moment in our life, we're, 
always tending to our own needs. And we're always showing grace to ourselves, giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, even though we can often be our worst enemy, we always show ourselves grace. And what Lewis is pointing out, show that same kind of grace to other people as well. We're used to showing ourselves grace. Let's show other people that same kind of grace as well. So Jesus is showing us how to have compassion for our enemies. And what he's also doing here is he's wanting us to see our own need for forgiveness. He wants us to see that on the cross, Jesus hanging there, the reason why he is hanging there on the cross is because of our own sins. That we, in fact, were the ones who nailed him to the cross. And so much of our spiritual growth and maturity and discipleship is growing in awareness of that reality. I imagine there are many of you here who have grown up in church, and I think we all have a certain idea of what Christian maturity looks like. We have a certain ideal in our minds. You know, this person is spiritually mature for any number of reasons. Perhaps this person is involved in leadership, or this person demonstrates these qualities, has consistent devotionals, prays a lot, serves the poor, is always kind to other people. Whatever ideal we have, we have a certain conception of what spiritual maturity uh, entails. But when we think about what does it actually mean to be a mature Christian, when we think about Jesus' perspective, how does he define what Christian maturity looks like? What I would argue from Scripture is that perhaps the most important sign of Christian maturity is a growing awareness of our own need for forgiveness. And in a famous parable that Jesus gives, he tells the story of a tax collector, a government official who has a history of corruption, and a Pharisee, a religious leader. And in this parable, Both of these individuals, they go to church to pray and they worship. And the Pharisee, the religious leader, gives thanks to God because he's morally upright. He does all this religious activity. He knows the things that he has to do. And he says, God, thank you that you've made me this way. Thank you that I have such upright character that I fast and I give to the church. Thank you that you've made me this way. And the tax collector the corrupt official simply kneels on the ground and offers up this simple prayer to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what Jesus says next is simply astonishing. He says that who is the one who is justified? Who is the one who is approved in my eyes? And he says it's not the religious leader. It's the one who understood his need for forgiveness. It's that government official, it's that tax collector who was aware of his own corruption. That's the one who went home approved and justified. And in that little narrative, God is giving us a glimpse into what true spirituality and maturity looks like, a growing awareness that we, in fact, are desperately in need of mercy and forgiveness. And that is perhaps the most telltale sign that we're growing in maturity. It's when we so acutely are aware of how much we need the forgiveness of God in our lives. 
If you've grown up in church, I, I realize that's the classic Sunday school answer. We know that, of course, we are in need of mercy and forgiveness. But in our heart of hearts, do we actually feel viscerally that we are in desperate need of God's forgiveness? What, what is the key to change? Where do we find the ability to forgive like Jesus forgave? When you think about this story of Mother Emmanuel, I think when I first heard the story, my, my instinct was to reflect on Chris Singleton and to want to be like him. If he can forgive such an egregious thing that was committed against his family, can I also forgive those who have offended me in much smaller ways? I think that's probably many of our instincts. It's to try to identify with Chris Singleton, to see in him a model of what forgiveness can look like. But I think the key to change, the key to growing in our ability to forgive is not necessarily seeing ourselves in Chris Singleton, but it's actually seeing ourselves in Dylan Roof. That it's understanding that all of us have the propensity to do something as egregious as what Ruth did. That we all have the capacity to do that. When we think about the hatred that we hold in our own hearts, that Jesus, in fact, calls that murder. The sins that we have underneath, for whatever social reason, we're keeping them hidden. If we had the same upbringing as Dylan Roof, we grew up the way that he did, we experienced the same kind of abuse that he experienced, we were fed the same kind of twisted and demonic ideology that led him down this dark path, if we were exposed to the same things, what makes us think that we would end up any different? We all have that capacity to turn out in the same way if we were growing up in the same conditions that he grew up in as well. In, in the Old Testament, uh, King David, uh, there's a famous story where one of the most uh, well-known stories of sin uh, in the Bible where King David commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And... King David, after he commits that sin of adultery, he just moves on with his life. And he thinks that by covering it up, by arranging for the murder of Bathsheba's husband, by just moving on, he thinks that it's something he could sweep under the rug and no one will ever remember. You know, he's the king, of course. He can get away with anything that he wants. But there comes a moment where the prophet Nathan breaks into the scene. And if you know the story, you're familiar with this. Nathan confronts King David by telling him a story. And he says, David, uh, there's a story of two people. There's a rich person and a poor person. And the rich person has this massive uh, flock of sheep and other livestock, uh, one of the wealthiest people in this town. And in that same town, there's a poor person who uh, has one little sheep. And that poor family, they nurture and raise that sheep like it's their own daughter. 
The sheep is always around their family, grows old with them, uh, becomes a fully grown uh, sheep. And one, one point in the story, a visitor comes into town, and in that culture, it's incumbent upon them to uh, be hospitable, to uh, cook them meals. And in that moment, to show hospitality to this visitor, the rich man, instead of taking one out of many sheep that he has, he goes to the poor family and steals the sheep that they have and slaughters that lamb to give to this visitor who just came to town. And when David hears the story, he's the ruler of this land. He has responsibility over this kingdom. When he hears the story, he is furious. This man who stole that other sheep, that man deserves to die. What an injustice that he's committed. And Nathan, in that moment, stops King David. He says, you are that man. You are that man. And that same outrage that you have against that rich man stealing that sheep, that's the same thing that you, in fact, have done. You are that man. And I think what God is doing in that story is to all of us as well. When we hear these stories of egregious sin out there in the world, I think what God is wanting us to see as well is that we also are that man. We are that woman. And we have the capacity to do all these things as well. In fact, we have done them just in the hiddenness, the secret of our own hearts. That we, in fact, are also that man. We are that woman. And do you see yourself uh, in that story? This is what Jesus is always wanting to do. He, he takes these hidden sins in our lives and he's wanting us to see the seriousness of them. Those who look at someone else with lust in their hearts, with impure thoughts, that person has in fact committed adultery. To hate and resent someone is to murder someone in your own heart. To look down upon someone is to oppress them in our lives. To hoard the, the God-given wealth that he's graciously afforded to us, to hoard it for ourselves, for our own selfish gain, is in fact to steal from the poor. And to withhold forgiveness, to withhold forgiveness is to demonstrate that we in fact don't understand the forgiveness that God has so graciously given to us. When we identify ourselves in Dylan Roof, when we see ourselves in, in King David, that is actually the first step in this journey of forgiveness. To realize that all of us, we are the ones who are in need of forgiveness. There's a political leader who said this quote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart in our culture today that demands payment for sins but doesn't have a category for forgiveness, we often think that the line that separates good and evil is out there. The the evil is out there. The good is over here. But in fact, the line that separates good and evil runs through all of our own hearts. And it's only when we receive God's forgiveness that we can begin to forgive one another as well. It's only when we receive the love of God, recognize our own need for God's love, that we can start extending that love to other people too. There, there's this illustration that the author I quoted earlier, uh, Risner, who gives this powerful story, and 
I want to end by showing this diagram where this whole idea that Jesus talks about, where the fuel that can empower our growth in Christian living is by connecting ourselves to the vine. If we are like branches, we connect ourselves to Jesus, who is the true vine, the source of vitality in our spiritual walks. And the process of engraftment is, I didn't know this before, but the way it works is there has to be something that's a little line that's cut in the vine. And the way that the branch is connected to the vine is in the place where the branch end is frayed and it's deposited into that little section that's cut off from the vine. The, the way that the vine connects to the branch is in their place of woundedness, in the place that is cut open, that that, in fact, is how the vine is engrafted to the branches. So when, when Jesus calls us to stay connected to the vine, what he's calling us to is all the wounds that we have in our lives, the wounds that are keeping us from extending forgiveness to other people, Jesus is calling us to himself and saying, bring those wounds to me. And the abandonment that you have felt, the hatred that you've experienced, the exclusion, the rejection, all that pain that you've experienced, Jesus is saying, I have felt those things as well. I was abandoned by those who I love the most. I was rejected, spat on. I was left to die alone, naked and ashamed. And when you have these wounds in your own lives, remember that I also share in those wounds. And the way that you can stay connected to me is in the place of our wounds. In your tears, Jesus is saying, I also cry with you. I weep with you too. And in that place of suffering, that's in fact the deepest way we can connect to Christ. And the source of forgiveness in our lives is it's only coming from the power that Christ supplies us by helping us remember that in that connection, Jesus is filling us with vitality. In the place of our wounding, Jesus is wanting to fill us with his power. And we begin to find healing for our own wounds when we connect to Christ in that way, but when we also connect to others as well. I remember when my dad passed away 20 years ago when I was in college. Uh, I was 20 at that point. And, you know, college students, they often don't know what to say in moments of tragedy and loss. And, uh, like, a lot of my friends would, very well-intended, uh, we would get together and they would tell me certain things. Oh, um, you know, quote Bible verses and, you know, say things like, you know, God's going to work out everything for good. There, you know, there's a plan. And those things are true. And I, I believe those things with all my heart. But in the moment, uh, in the middle of my grief, it wasn't that helpful. It wasn't that helpful. And over and over again, that was the message that people would tell me. But there was one conversation, multiple conversations with people. Uh, and these are the ones that were so helpful for me. When people would come up to me and tell me, you know, uh, I also lost uh, a parent when I was young too. And I, I feel the pain that you're feeling now. 
And uh, there's one person here at Harvest who said that to me too. We were in small group together. I still remember those words. Uh, I lost uh, my own parent too. I know what it feels like. And when I was able to connect with other people in their place of wounding, uh, that was so powerful for me. Uh, it, it was where so much of my healing started to happen too. And that's getting at this idea where, you know, Jesus, of course, understands the source of all of our wounds. And the way that we can begin to experience healing is by understanding, recognizing that Jesus knows exactly what we're experiencing, the pain that we feel. He, in fact, feels it. And when that connection starts to happen in community, too, it has the power to transform and bring about healing when we never thought it possible. And therein we find the resources to be able to forgive as well. When we start to experience healing, that fuels us to offer forgiveness from that place where we are being filled. Of course, the Bible says that it's through Jesus' wounds that we are healed. And that is, of course, true in a salvific sense, from the perspective of salvation, but also in these interactions, uh, in these wounds that we have from our own past and from relationships, Jesus wants to be our healer there too. And it's when we connect to Christ in these moments of pain and wounding, that's where he wants to give us the power to extend that same kind of healing, that same kind of forgiveness to other people too. So I wanted to just take some time to uh, reflect on some of these truths together. So let's take some time now to uh, pray through this idea of forgiveness. And, of course, it's one of the most important concepts that uh, churches will talk about, forgiveness. But while we know it's something we have to grant to other people, it's often so hard to do it. But let's take some time now to reflect on those spaces in our own hearts. It could be something uh, egregious that we've been harboring for years, if not decades. Uh, it could be something as uh, benign as a little grudge that we hold against someone else. Uh, it could be an argument uh, that we're having with a spouse or a friend, uh, someone else in our community, whatever it might be. Let's take some time to reflect on ways that God might be calling us to offer forgiveness. And we don't always have to feel like doing it but nevertheless it is something that God calls us to do we could take a moment to consider that that we can forgive because Christ forgave us and we can begin this journey of forgiveness when we begin to have compassion and those who have hurt us. When we even see ourselves in those who have committed all kinds of sins, when we can see ourselves in them, that's when we realize as well that all of us are in need of grace. We are in just as much need of grace as everyone else, even those who have hurt us too. Let's take a moment to reflect on that.
the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either but right through every human heart if we could take some time to reflect on that too and in our cultural moment that wants to lob grenades and wants to divide us versus them the evil that is out there in the world uh, versus the good that we have here in our communities, uh, in our families. Uh, but let's reflect on the reality that the source of our unity in our church, even in our culture, is by recognizing that we're all in the same boat. That line between good and evil runs through all of our hearts. That, in fact, is the basis for unity, the recognition that we're all sinners in need of grace, all of us with massive blind spots. We'll take a moment to reflect on those areas of our own hearts. That battle between good and evil that rages on in our hearts. Let's reflect on that. Asking God to reveal those places to us. So let's take a moment to think on those things. Maybe there's an individual that God might be uh, impressing upon your own heart that God wants you to perhaps begin this journey of forgiving and a very painful, excruciating process. But take a moment, uh, if God is nudging you in that direction to Pray for that person, whoever it might be, uh, however egregious uh, that sin uh, against you. But take a moment to pray for that person, uh, irrespective of how you might feel towards that person. It's often, it's often difficult to resent someone as we're praying for them. And if you take a moment to uh, pray for one individual, whoever that might be, Ask God to have mercy on them. Ask God to work in their lives. 
Ask God to give you the resources to somehow, some way, begin to extend forgiveness as well. And then finally, if we can pray for uh, Harvest and uh, this community here. And I probably a good number of you can recall stories of uh, growing up in different church contexts and seeing how uh, unforgiveness can wreak havoc on the unity of a congregation and uh, churches splitting over uh, grudges that are held and resentment and bitterness that's harbored for so long and unreconciled relationships uh, causing uh, these communities that were once so strong to disintegrate over time. And if we could pray for Harvest, the community here, uh, that there would be the power of God coming down into this community, uh, extending grace to all of us here, and that this would be a church family marked by uh, not perfection, uh, but in imperfection, the willingness to extend grace and forgiveness, uh, because every one of us recognizes how much forgiveness we have received from Christ. We can pray that harvest would be marked by that kind of love and forgiveness. Without it, it would be impossible to achieve any kind of unity in the church. We can pray for harvest as our final reflection point, and then we'll close out with a song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.